0: Celebrate the progress that you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com Curiosities today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Curiosities.
1: Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild.
0: Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. The greatest minds and talents in history all had to start somewhere. Albert Einstein worked as a patent clerk, Fashion designer Ralph Lauren joined the Army as a young man before working as a salesman for the Brooks Brothers clothing store. But Juju McWilliams may have had the strangest start of all. McWilliams was born in Pasadena, California in 1912. Her father was a successful Massachusetts politician, and her mother the heiress to a paper company. McWilliams grew into quite the accomplished teen— For one, she was tall for her age, standing over her high school classmates at a whopping six feet two inches. Her height helped on the basketball court as well. After graduating high school, she attended college where she continued her athletic trajectory until she took a job in New York working at an advertising firm as a copywriter. But her life in the big city eventually ended as the war effort came calling. McWilliams enlisted in 1942 to serve her country— Unfortunately, the military deemed her too tall for service. However, she was able to secure a spot with the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, where she served as a research assistant. She spent most of her time typing up little white cards with the names and addresses of government operatives. It wasn't glamorous, but it did put her on the radar of OSS top brass. Before long, they moved her from behind a desk to behind a lab table. You see, the OSS had a problem, one they believed that McWilliams might be able to help them solve. There was work being done in the OSS Emergency Sea Rescue Equipment section on stopping sharks. They didn't want to kill any sharks, but the curious creatures had a troublesome habit of accidentally setting off underwater mines that were meant for German U-boats. There had also been several reports of shark attacks over the previous three years, inciting fear among many seabound soldiers. The OSS tasked Captain Harold J. Coolidge with developing a shark repellent to keep them away from the mines and the men. Coolidge had come from the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology, and his partner, Dr. Henry Field, was brought in from a natural history museum in Chicago. McWilliams was assigned to Coolidge as an assistant. Together with Field and chemical technician Stuart Springer, the team ran a battery of tests on various substances to see how well they kept sharks away. And their test subject? A small shark called the spiny dogfish. They put dead shark meat, acids, nicotine, pine oils, and about a hundred other chemicals in the water before settling on a combination of copper sulfate, copper acetate, malic acid, and dead shark extract. The spiny dogfish found the mixture repulsive and stayed away about 60% of the time. McWilliams was awarded for her work with the OSS, and even met her future husband, Paul, while working there. In fact, it was Paul who helped her find her footing after the war, too. He had lived in France when he was younger and had developed a taste for fine food. After joining the U.S. Foreign Service in 1948, he and Juju moved to the City of Lights, where she experienced one of the most incredible and important meals of her life. It was at a restaurant called La Couronne in the city of Rouen. McWilliams had enjoyed oysters, followed by a main course of sole meunier, a French fish dish often prepared with a savory brown butter sauce. She described the experience as an opening up of the soul and spirit. It inspired her to enroll in French culinary school, from which she graduated in 1951. McWilliams eventually met two other chefs, Simone Beck and Louisette Bertoli, who had been working together on a cookbook of French cuisine. Beck suggested McWilliams join them as a third author, considering she was an American who had developed a love for French cooking. Her insight might help the book reach an American audience as well. The publisher originally turned the book down, claiming it was too long and boring to be of interest to anyone, but the three women persevered, and in 1961, their 700 page love letter to French cooking was published to great acclaim. McWilliams herself went on to become a successful newspaper columnist and cookbook author as well as the host of a very popular cooking show on public television. And none of it would have happened without two major events in her life, her work with the OSS on shark repellent and meeting her husband, Paul Cushing Child. The world at large never knew Juju McWilliams. Juju had been a childhood nickname of hers. Instead, they fell in love with Julia Carolyn McWilliams, better known to aspiring chefs everywhere as Julia Child. Well, it's got standard third row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer.
0: In 1925, a deadly outbreak of diphtheria hit the residents of Nome, Alaska. It's a highly contagious bacterial infection with a mortality rate of 10% and 20% for children. Untreated and without vaccinations, the death rate jumps even higher. It's rare in developed countries due to vaccination, but in the early 1900s, Nome's lone doctor noticed a 100% mortality rate among children. Even with treatment, it was often fatal in young children. To save them, he needed a special serum one that he didn't have. Alaska is known for some unforgiving wilderness. and that January, winter prevented getting the life-saving serum to the town. Thick ice prevented ships from making passage to a nearby harbor. Alaskan winds and sub-zero temperatures rendered planes useless. Neither plane nor pilot would survive the trip, even if the handful of planes weren't in storage too far away to even consider the dangerous attempt. Without treatment, though, the entire town was in peril children were the most vulnerable, and every day more fell ill, wheezing and gasping for breath. Despite his best efforts, all the doctor could do was watch them die at an alarming rate. The bacteria produced a deadly toxin that built up in the bloodstream, causing organ failure. He ordered a quarantine, though he knew that was just borrowed time. Without the serum, the children of Nome would die. So telegraphs flew, And Anchorage said they had the life saving serum, although the closest they could ship the precious cargo was by railway to Ninana. There was only one thing left to do use the wintertime mail carriers. No, these weren't special vehicles equipped for snow, these were sled dogs. There was a problem, though. The dogs were used for short distances. Humans and animals would have to travel 700 miles in a particularly harsh winter with little to no protection from the elements, much less defend themselves against dangerous wildlife. And with new cases of diphtheria appearing daily, they were up against the clock. Still, running the dogs too hard and fast would frost their lungs, effectively killing them. The conditions that winter were terrible, even for Alaska. Each team that had the serum would face similar conditions for their 30-mile run. Pushing harder would put the team at risk. The governor put out requests for volunteers. They'd need the bravest of men and the hardiest of dogs. He didn't sugarcoat it, either. They'd have to travel across frozen lakes with ice that may not hold their weight, navigate through dense forests, and travel in near whiteout conditions across the tundra. In January, there wouldn't be a lot of daylight, either. Most of the teams would be running in the dark. A ragged crew of locals stepped up to the challenge mostly Athabascans and Inuit, who were familiar with the terrain. Short on enough volunteers, they would have to travel farther than others. And as if they needed one more thing to worry about, the serum would be rendered useless if it reached below freezing temperatures. The first team left at night on January 27th, making the first leg of the journey in 60 below weather and traveling 52 miles. To save his dogs from the strain, the musher frequently ran beside them when he finally met up with the next team he had suffered from hypothermia and frostbite. The last team encountered whiteout conditions. Snow crusted the dog's fur as they ran against strong winds. An 80-mile-per-hour gust hit the team, flipping the sled, the cargo, and the dogs upside down in the snow. In an instant, musher Gunnar Kaysen dove into the snow after the serum, but he couldn't find it with his mitts on. After digging with his bare hands, he scooped up the fur-covered package. Then he righted the sled and pushed on to the meeting point for the next team. But his relief team never showed up. He had to ask his tired dogs to make the next leg of the journey. Finally, at 5.30 in the morning on February 2nd, Kaysen's lead dog, Balto, barked as they stopped in front of the doctor's office, the serum safe and sound. Man's best friend had saved the town. 48 years later, in 1973, the race became immortalized in another way the Iditarod Sled Race, as you might have already guessed. It's run every year in March, not January, though. Oh, and one last thing. The governor who put out the call for the bravest of men and the hardiest of dogs, his name was Scott C. Bone. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities.